This is The Rundown. Good morning. I'm Jill Kaufman in for Carrie Saldo here on 88.5 NEPM. Joining me in the NEPM studios in Springfield is reporter Nirvani Williams from NEPM, also a freelance reporter and columnist and overall longtime Western Mass news hound Michael Dobbs. And joining us by phone from Boston is John Mysick, the political editor for Mass Live. Good morning, everyone. Good, Good morning. morning. Good morning. Let's talk about a few of the biggest stories this week in Western Mass, starting with disturbing allegations of a racist act on social media that is connected to students at the Southwick Regional School. It's the high school in the district. Uh, Nirvani, you've been reporting on this at NEPM. What, what we know and what's still being investigated is that there was a, quote, inappropriate and racist conversation on Snapchat, and that is according to the district superintendent. It was directed at black students, and Nirvani, you spoke with the mother of one of the students, um, and she she described the social media post as a mock online slave bidding generating students of color. Um, these allegations came to light to the public this week while students are on vacation. What do we know about how the school district is handling this? How are they speaking? How is the superintendent or anyone speaking to the school community? Yeah, absolutely. I, well, the latest is that Jennifer Willard, who's the superintendent of the Southwick Tolan Granville Regional School District, said in a statement yesterday that Southwick Regional School officials will be organizing a, quote, special assembly for students upon their return to school from break. She said that the assembly will serve as a forum for open dialogue, support, and guidance on navigating what what she said in the statement, challenging situations both inside and outside of the school. And so one of the victim's moms, Allison Lopez, who I spoke with, also issued a statement, presumably in response to Willard's statement yesterday, saying her meeting with school district administrators left her feeling, quote, profoundly disillusioned and that there is a, quote, serious lack of understanding and commitment among the administrative leadership to ensure the safety and well-being of all students based on their race and ethnicity. And she said she feels compelled to explore alternative avenues to seek justice and ensure accountability for those responsible. And I asked her what she meant by that. Um, and she said she doesn't no yet, but she will do whatever is needed for administrators to, quote, wake up, which I thought was very interesting. Did, did she say anything or do we know anything about Southwick um, and um, previous experiences with uh, in of racism between students in the district or, um, or, or you know, attacks on students? I, I, there is no trend here. I know that. I don't want to mm -hmm. imply that Southwick has experienced anything. But what do we know anything about its past? Well, Lopez, uh, the mother, said that um, her daughter experienced two former acts of racism. She she said that she was called the N-word by some students in in their in her class and that she brought this up to the vice principal and uh she said that the vice principal didn't really address the problems. Um, she also she also said that in 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 response to this recent act of of racism, uh, that her daughter is struggling and uh, that um, she's she's really unsure about what to do currently, um, and that th this doesn't just affect her daughter's ability to work and go to school, but 
also, you know, her daughter's questioning whether or not her friends, who who are mainly and mostly white, the school is 89 percent white, according to uh, state records, um, if, if her friends who are white are true friends and, mm-hmm. you know, how to navigate those challenges. Right. So this is very, this. very personal and very also personal. Uh, lar- larger than the individual in this, which is um, uh, because yeah. of what we know about the world. Michael Dobbs, a few years ago, you wrote about um, how Springfield and Chicopee and Holyoke declared racism a public health emergency, which is happening, you know, which is a statement, uh, a declaration that other cities and towns have, have uh, declared. But particularly in public schools, what are you seeing? Uh, what What do you see that's been done about this public health emergency since 2020, since George Floyd's death? Well, I think that there's been a, a, a lot of discussion about it at certain levels. But this incident in Southwick sort of points something out. And what it points out is even if school administrators have attempted to address <clears throat> racism in, in their schools, it's alive and well. It's out there. And Doing something and thinking that you have cured it is not necessarily the truth here. This is uh, whatever schools have to do. It has to be an ongoing effort because there's a whole group of new kids, a whole group of new parents, also a whole group of new situations and circumstances, um, which which each grade. So um, honestly, yeah, it's it's fine for communities to talk about this. But uh, I think that certainly, to a certain extent, the pandemic took a focus off of these kinds of issues and problems mm-hmm. in America. Um, putting George Floyd's tragic murder aside, I don't think that sometimes as a nation we have an attention span long enough to actually deal with things. John Mysick, uh, uh, on Beacon Hill, you know, at the state level, school districts can do what they can do when there are resources, and that would be, you know, funding for intervention for curriculums, like something which is very well known, uh, nationally facing history that I think comes out of uh, Brookline. What do we know about, you know, uh, in the last bit of time, and I know you're relatively new to to uh, covering um, Massachusetts for Mass Live. What do we know, though, about what the, what state lawmakers, um, what the Department of Education is doing for districts at this point? Yeah, you know, I can, I'll, concur, I'll concur with Mike on this. This is not something where school districts can necessarily rest on their laurels. And I'm thinking particularly, Jula, about a conversation I had with the Rabbi Mark Hirsch, who runs the Combined Jewish Philanthropies um, in Boston, where obviously with the discussions around Harvard and MIT, we've seen this uptick in anti-Semitism. And the one thing that Hirsch drove home is this is not something that you can rest on. Um, that these are efforts that have to be consistent and constant, and that bad speech has to be countered with with better speech and continuing education. And, you know, in the conversations I've had with policymakers on Beacon Hill, um, you know, they feel much the same way. The state has a responsibility to, to step up here and to provide districts with the resources that they need um, to make sure that, you know, that, that students are, are educated to that end. You know, we don't have to look any further than the polling data over the last couple of years by the ADL and other groups pointing to the uptick in hate crimes, pointing to the uptick um, in anti-Semitic incidents uh, to know that this is with us and constantly at all times. So it's not really something, um, as I think Mike correctly pointed out, where we can take a passive approach. And just to point out that uh, Talbert Swan, who's the head of the Springfield chapter of the NAACP, uh, said in response to Southwick in particular that racist attitudes are, are fermented in young people. This is a quote, young people through their environment, through their parents, through their teaching, through what they're exposed to. And I know uh, Nirvani uh, and uh, Khalees, um, uh, 
um, spoke with uh, Bishop Swan um, just this week, um, yes. and uh, you know, and and they spoke about you know that that yes that 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 racism exists still. It hasn't gone away, even if he's he's heard that this generation is is different. Um, need to move on to something. Um, uh, that is also happening statewide, but also happening out here. Um, Governor Healy's nomination of a highly qualified judge to the state's highest court, that's the uh, SJC, as we say for short. Uh, within the next few weeks, the Massachusetts Governor's Council will vote whether to confirm the state appeals court judge, Gabrielle Wolohogin, uh, that's to the SJC. She was involved romantically with Governor Moore Healy for several years. No one is covering that up, but it has left some questioning the optics of the nomination. Um, during her confirmation hearing this week, the governor said that this relationship shouldn't matter. As I have said in the past, a personal relationship and my personal relationship with Judge Wolohogin should not deprive the people of Massachusetts of an outstanding SJC justice. And she is outstanding. According to many people, there was not a lot of pushback at the nomination hearings uh, this week. But one member of the governor's council who is based out in North, Am uh, North Adams is Tara Jacobs. She said at the hearing that she is struggling with the optics of the nomination to the SJC and at least another itch issue, which is a lack of representation for Western Mass on the bench. And this is uh, this is Jacobs. There's the regional inequity element of it that we have no representation at the SJC, and was there an equal opportunity across the board for those who weren't in, you know, what could be called a deep insider? And uh, Wola Hojin just responded that she understood those concerns, and she explained her expertise and her ability to recuse herself from any cases if needed. Mike Dobbs, uh, she has faced very little critique at the hearing. Uh, what do you think of the optics here? Well, you know. Uh... It, it's unfortunate that uh, a past relationship between these two people is now coming into play because, in all honesty, you should be judging candidates for a position like this solely based on their qualifications. She's had a very long history as an appellant judge, if I remember correctly, and and because of that, that's how she's being judged. Um, I, I, I really, you know, I really personally don't care if, if they were a couple— <laughs> I do care about the concept that we have an SJC that has no one from Western Massachusetts mm -hmm. on it. And uh, my counter to Governor Healy would be, were there any other candidates besides this one with equal qualifications that would have come from the one of the four western counties. This is something Joan Finucchi wrote about in the Boston Globe, which is um, of all the gin joints in all the world, of all the Massachusetts <laughs> judges in all the state, why why this one? Um, John Mysek on, on Beacon Hill, um, what are the conversations like in the hallways of the Capitol if, they're, if you're hearing any buzz? Yeah, you know, we actually asked the governor that very a variation on that very question um, after Judge Wolohosen's appointment was announced. Was there nobody else? And she was adamant that there was not, that she was the best candidate who came up from the uh, SJC, SJC's nominating committee. Um, you know, this is, this is the second appointment that Healy has had to the high court. Um, Bessie, uh, her last name's escaping me at the moment, her former state solicitor was recently confirmed to the, um, to the high court. Both appointments from within Healy's inner circle. Um, you know, the governor can appoint whom she wants to appoint. She's clearly trying to remake, remake the image, remake the content of the court, uh, which is now full of Charlie Baker appointees. But she, uh, I think, is rightly facing questioning on Beacon Hill, uh, within Beacon Hill and without, um, 
about whether or not you know she's picking the best people who are suited for the for the job. I don't think there's any question that Judge Wolohojian is qualified, um, but certainly in a state full of judges, there could have been a broader nominating pool. And that is a, a it's a Justice Elizabeth Dewar who um, uh, thank took, you very much was sworn in yeah sworn in in January. But she is the she is the first of those uh, Healy appointees as you you mentioned. Um, Ma'am, would I like to go on and talk about implicit bias in this and the questioning of selves? But we want to talk about one other story before the break, which is about the Holyoke Public Schools still in receivership. That means still being um, operated by the state of Massachusetts and the commissioner of education, Jeff Riley, who does the K-12 part of education, announced he was resigning as of uh, the beginning of next month. Um, there's been a lot of good work documented at the Holyoke Public Schools who have petitioned uh, the state to take back that control so they can make decisions about the budget and about, uh, you know, uh, teacher contracts, everything under the sun that is budget related. But uh, Commissioner Riley said, not yet. More talking needs to happen. Now, change in management, change in leadership. Um, You know, uh, John Mysick, Mayor Garcia said that Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll gave him a call to say, what can she do to help? When Governor Healy was running for office, she promised the districts and receivership would get back that local control. What's your take on this? You know, in in Kim Driscoll, uh, Jill, uh, the administration really has somebody who understands the needs of local districts. And the governor has spoken about her desire to want to, you know, to want to help uh, local districts, to want to, to interface with them and, and give them some power back. And there, and you know, there's no there's no issue more emotional than um, than local school districts. And that you know, the next person who's going to lead this obviously is going to have a pretty towering challenge um, ahead of them. Uh, Mike Dobbs, you've been watching this uh, situation in Holyoke for as long as I have, or even longer. You've been out here. Um, what um, What is your take about a change in management? Could it gum up that process, that, that finely tuned process? We've got about a minute or so. I don't think it's particularly good news for the city of Holyoke because I'm sure that the person who comes into this job is going to want to do all sorts of anal- analysis about it, uh, study, thought, meetings. And, and, and the bottom line is, as I know for a fact, that uh, Mayor Garcia was expecting a decision to have the schools turned back to the city. And this was literally the carpet being, you know, jerked out from underneath them. Michael Moriarty, who is on the Board of Education, um, who lives in Holyoke, he uh, has great faith in the interim um, commissioner who is likely going to take this. I'm sorry, the deputy commissioner who is likely going to become the interim commissioner. We'll see what happens with that. Um, that decision should be made within a few weeks, I believe. Um do you you know there was a tension between Garcia and the mayor Garcia and and Riley though there was a great respect as well. Have you been following that somewhat? Um, I've heard a little bit about that. I, I mean, I think the mayor Garcia, by his nature, he's a very policy oriented mayor. Mayor, uh, that's not a slight, by the way. That to me is a as a plus, and I think that he felt uh, justified in in advocating for Holyoke to resume control of the school committee. Mysick, uh, uh, John Mysick, and um, everybody's got a last name. John Mysick in Boston. Any any thoughts on this? Um, I know that um, this is something that's been going on since 2015. And um, where where do you see? Um, this going um, as you see the governor intervening, if perhaps. Yeah, I, I, I will admit I don't have as much familiarity with this issue um, as I might like. I mean, we're obviously heading into uh, heading into the spring budget process here with with more with more state funding heading towards school districts. Um, you know, 
districts going to receivership and issues of local control are clearly very emotional ones. And I will uh, I will defer to Mike's analysis on this, I think. <laughs> All right. Let's leave it there for a moment. We'll take a break. We'll be back to talk about books for young readers uh, in Great Barrington, some declared pornographic that are not. I'm Jill Kaufman. You're listening to The Rundown on 88.5 NEPM. You're listening to 88.5 NEPM, NPR News, and Local Perspective for Western Mass. The Rundown with Carrie Saldo is funded in part by Armbrook Village. Welcome back to The Rundown. I'm Jill Kaufman, in for Carrie Saldo. With us this hour is NEPM reporter Nirvani Williams, columnist Michael Dobbs, who's a former longtime executive editor at the Reminder Newspapers, and by phone from Boston, John Mysek, Mass Live's political editor. Let's dive back into the week's news around Western Massachusetts now with a look at something that's happening at the state level. Uh, Massachusetts state senators next week are expected to vote again on the so-called Healthy Youth Act. It is an update of the state's really antiquated sex and health education curriculum. It is not a mandate for districts. It is a suggested curriculum. It would create guidelines uh, that the district can opt into teaching sex education. John Mysek, this is something you've already written about for Mass Live this week. What do we know about uh, this incredible thing that the House in particular has not touched this, um, these proposed uh, Senate uh, bills for a decade or, or something along those lines, even though the Board of Education has approved uh, in this past year what the with the governor's endorsement, similar guidelines for districts. Yeah, uh, State Senator Saldi Domenico is hoping the fifth time will be the charm here, uh, Jill, with this bill. Um, he's, he's, tr- he's tried and failed on this before. It's never cleared the House. Um, these standards that districts would have to opt into um, would uh, require districts to provide, quote, medically accurate um, and, in- and age-appropriate education for students on a host of issues from bodily autonomy and consent issues uh, to gender identification issues uh, to teaching about um, STDs and HIV AIDS. Uh, Parents also would have the right to be notified about these standards uh, and could opt their kids out if they choose to. And those kids would then be provided with uh, academically, quote, academically appropriate uh, programming while those classes are going on. as you correctly point out, it's, you know, they've been trying for some years to get these uh, standards through the door. I talked to Di Domenico yesterday. Um, he believes this year is the time with the standards being approved by the Board of Education that there's been support from the governor's office on this issue. Um, so we're expecting a vote probably uh, tail end of next week in the Senate, and uh, we'll see how that works out. Uh, Michael Dobbs, what is it about politics here? What is it about the House Democrats not touching this, um, not being, not allowing the state basically to update these recommendations since 1999? And these are, you know, these are medically based, evidence based recommendations for sex and health education that are keeping kids safe. Uh, and they, there is even, you know, whether if this is conservative versus liberal, I don't know. These are House Democrats in Massachusetts who are not touching it. What do we know about that? Well, all I know is that sex education has been a hot-button topic ever since I was in school, and I was in school when dinosaurs roamed the earth. So um, it doesn't surprise me that uh, here in the 21st century, these politicians are still operating on this premise that giving kids necessary information about their lives, about their bodies, about society— 
uh, is still somehow verboten. Um, you know, we still have issues with AIDS. We still have issues with STDs. We still have issues with people uh, and gender identity being accepted in, this, in society. All of these issues still exist, and they're just sticking their heads in the sand as far as I'm concerned, um, especially because, as you just noted, this is not mandated. This is suggested. So it's still up to local school committees to implement this kind of curriculum. Students students are uh, at risk for missing out on information. And Nirvani, uh, you know, you, uh, you've been in school buildings. You've been covering uh, covering situations. What what do you think of this? I mean, I, I under the bill it says that sex ed would talk more about consent, LGBTQ language, and healthy relationships. And I think that's really important for kids to be exposed to. Um, and it sounds like. I mean, based on what what's in the bill, it's a lot more detailed, unlike a suggestion. And I think that that that's really important for teachers to to hold on to just a very specific kind of curriculum, just like what you were saying, Mike. Uh, and John, are, are we able to look at Massachusetts in? I know we can look at Massachusetts in light of what other states have um, uh, have written in terms of this kind of sex and health education legislation. Massachusetts, which is looked at in the country as a liberal, a bastion of you know liberal uh, sensibilities and politicians, even a Republican in Massachusetts is a <laughs> is is considered at least centrist. Um, other states have already implemented um, similar kinds of legislation. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I sort of looked up yesterday and thought the same thing, John. Like, well, they weren't doing this already, um, and the fact that it that it hadn't that it hadn't passed here, and they've been trying for um, a decade. It's just another one of these in instances where uh, Massachusetts' uh, reputation as a progressive prog progressive bastion kind of runs up against hard political reality. Um, when I was talking to Dina, Senator Dean Domenico yesterday, I mean, he really hammered home the necessity of teaching these standards. He said, look. And this is a direct quote. Kids, we either do it in the classroom or kids are going to talk about it on the playground. Um, he would rather have them have medically accurate and inclusive information um, than conduct those classes by the uh, by the by the by the seesaw, I suppose. Um, but, you know, it is a little inconceivable that while other states are plunging ahead on this, that uh, that Massachusetts is not in the vanguard of it. Uh, let's move on to uh, another um, controversy over um, over who gets to talk about um, sexuality and gender, and it starts with a police search in um, Great Barrington Public Schools. That definitely has elements of this these ongoing issues regarding challenges to books dealing with sexual content, LGBTQ content. Uh, this is happening in other Western. Massachusetts districts besides Great Barrington and way beyond. Um, NEPM's Nancy Cohen this week reported on an independent investigation into a police search that took place in December at a Great Barrington Middle School. It was in a classroom uh, looking for the memoir Gender Queer. It, the book was not found. Um, the book had been, there had been photos of the book taken on a teacher's desk. So the investigation found that the Berkshire Hills Regional School District didn't follow its own policies when it allowed the book search, when it allowed the police in. And the police were told by who we now know as a custodian that the book was pornography. Um, so th there's a lot going on in this story, but let let's talk about uh, about the books. Um, there were allegations um, that the that um, this book is is pornographic. It is a book that queer. Um, uh, it is a memoir. Gender queer is a memoir. It is approved by the American Library Association. It was handpicked, selected by um, teachers and librarians who are certified, who have studied, you know, young adult literature. Um, John, the situation in Great Barrington is is playing out in a lot of places. As parents are challenging books, 
Um, the tactics of these challenges in some states are shifting to legislation uh, being proposed um, by certain groups to to give more control to uh, to school communities and individual school uh, committees, rather. Um, what do you know about this in Massachusetts or beyond? Um, well, I mean, I, I was working in Pennsylvania before I came to, to Massachusetts, Joe. I mean, and the one thing I could say is we saw that debate unfolding there where even legislatively there were pushes to give parents broader says um, over what books can be in libraries, um, over their right to view curricula and object to it. I mean, this is a swing that we, re- that we really saw um, take place during the pandemic. Um, parents were at home. They had nothing else to do but, except to hop on Zoom meetings for their, for their local school boards. And you know, these, these conversations became particularly politically charged. It feels like this conversation in Great, in Great Barrington is of a piece um, with that, with, you know, again, parents sort of injecting themselves into uh, decisions that were traditionally left to um, the school officials and to educators. And most often it's a minority of parents who are making these decisions for the, uh, for the broader student body. Um, so it feels like it is sort of, of a piece of the broader conversation we've been seeing nationwide. So, Nirvani, I know that last year um, you worked on a, a story about a book called True You. It's a book that um, uh, helps kids, it's for kids, talk about gender um, and to explore their gender. And you asked the authors who are educators how they think teachers should react when kids are figuring out their identities at school, but um, they haven't come out to their parents yet. Um, this is something that has happened in Ludlow, Massachusetts, as well. Yeah. Um, so, were the authors um, able to weigh in on how um, on how teachers should react, what they should say about and, and about families, whether they, you know, there's policy around this, but can families get involved in these kinds of conversations if their kids haven't come out yet? What, what, did, the, what did the authors Definitely. say? Yeah. Well, Gwen Agna, who, who's one of the authors, um, she's, a, she's a beloved principal or a beloved former principal at, at Northampton Public School and a current school committee member. She says it's really important for teachers to proactively establish a culture of acceptance in their classroom and stress that figuring out their gender isn't something that the children have to feel like they have to hide from home or that they don't need to necessarily always share that at home, but that in school, in their classroom, they can express themselves however they feel most comfortable. Um, And, and, you know, Agnes' comments line up with um, the Ludlow case that you you mentioned. Like, a a judge did dismiss a federal lawsuit filed by two parents against the Ludlow Public Schools over keeping their children's gender identities quiet in 2021. A U.S. district judge ruled school officials did not violate the parents' civil rights when they supported two former middle school students who identified as gender fluid and sought to change their names and pronouns in their classrooms without informing their family. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to yeah. uh, gloss over the police search part of this uh, story that we, we've been covering for a few weeks now. Um, Mike Dobbs, um, there, you know, who, who gets to make the call? Who gets to... Schools do have policies about whether, how and when to respond to a concern. Um, the school responded to a concern about inappropriate behavior by the teacher, which was immediately dismissed. Um, there was no doubt that this teacher is, it would never have a student sit on their lap and do anything inappropriate. But but we're seeing um, we're seeing people, parents, custodians uh, react to what um, to these books and to what they perceive is inappropriate. Uh, it's a different time, it seems. Well, I, I think that, yes, it is a different time. Part of the reason is that this kind of information is all over 
all over uh, mass media talking about people's gender, talking about their rights, et cetera, et cetera. You know, schools reflect society. Um, schools, in, in, in my mind, are, are given such an enormous responsibility um, to try to educate kids on every aspect of their lives. We've given schools that responsibility, by the way. And I find it almost hypocritical when parents decide to look at the school and, and criticize them on, on this kind of material, this kind of issue, um, without being involved with their schools mm. uh, to begin with, uh, to actually think about what is happening. In this particular case, I, I, I think it's shameful that the school district violated their, their own procedures and their own protocols and, and jumped to conclusions that they shouldn't have jumped to. Now, if... If I read the reports correctly, the teacher involved hasn't come back yet to right. the schools. Right. I wouldn't be surprised if this individual resigns because this is this was a very serious allegation that was obviously quite frivolous. Oh, we have about a minute or so left. Last thoughts on on this on this situation um, for for teachers and for for kids. John Mysick in in Boston. Yeah, I, you know, I was thinking about that, Jill. I mean, this, this is obviously, we're asking, as Mike correctly points out, uh, we're asking teachers to take on quite a lot, and we keep even more responsibilities on them during the pandemic. And what we've seen as a result is an epidemic nationwide of teacher burnout and teachers leaving the profession um, because of the increased workloads, because of pay scales that aren't keeping up with the cost of living, and a debate that boiled over in Newton a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, it's hard to attract and retain good educators and when you keep more stuff like like this upon them um you know and i've had conversations with teachers about that to that end it is little wonder that uh, that they are leaving the profession and, and seeking employment elsewhere nirvani yeah and um gwen also points out that it is important for families if they are confused about what to do to go to educators to ask educators that you know or teaching their children what's important and and how how do their children act in the classroom and how should they react to their gender journey. Talk to each other. <laughs> Talk to each other. Exactly. Listen, we have to leave it there for this week, but I want to thank you so much for coming in. Michael Dobbs, Nirvani Williams, John Mysick. It's been great to have you all part of this conversation. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thanks so much. Coming up, Carrie Saldo speaks with an activist in Western Massachusetts who says she got some significant lessons from her grandmother to get out in the world and do good. I'm Jill Kaufman. This is The Rundown. This is The Rundown. I'm Jill Kaufman. In for Carrie Saldo. Greenfield resident Empress Nemhard is active in a variety of community works around Franklin County. We need a few minutes actually to tell you about all the organizations she volunteers with. But notably, she is the chair of the Greenfield Human Rights Commission. And she is president-elect of the Franklin County Rotary Club. Empress Nemhard recently spoke about what drives her as an activist with Gary. Empress Nemhard, welcome to The Rundown. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. Um, it sounds like you're at home. I hear a, a bird maybe in the background. Yeah, what's, what's the bird's name? My parakeets. I have two, Bundy and Alexa. <laughs> well, I know that birds are a nice calming presence to have in the house. So yes, they are. <laughs> uh, we have two cats. So yeah, no, that's probably not a, would not be a safe choice for any involved. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
so many hats that you wear on behalf of the Greenfield community. It's a little hard to know exactly where to start, but I think I'd like to start with your chair of the Human Rights Commission position. Um, for you, why was that role of interest to you there in Greenfield? Well, I actually started on the um, Greenfield Human Rights Commission in 2022. And um, what happened, I noticed there was a lot of transition because it was after COVID and everything like that. And one of the things I wanted us to do was to be more actively involved into our community. And there were so many things that prior that the prior commissioners and prior chairs started. But like I said, due to COVID and circumstances, wasn't able to actually fulfill a lot of those. So one of the things I wanted to do as chair was to start some of those things back. And one of them um, was actually bringing back, was reinstate in the Greenfield Human Rights Award Ceremony that was active for seven years. So that was one of the first things that we did accomplish. And, and you awarded Gloria Matlock that award, that, if, I, if I know correctly. That is correct. Gloria Matlock, yes. Teacher, documentary filmmaker, local activist, uh, another person who just has so many ties to the community and her work is really rich and varied. I've had the pleasure of speaking with her in the past. So it was really great to see her name. Why did Ms. Matlock stand out to the commission? Well, basically what it is, is that um, the commission really wasn't involved as far as picking the nominees. Um, this was something that was actually um, done through the city of Greenfield, giving the, um, the people in the community their own voice to actually independently choose who they wanted um, to actually be a nominee. So we had a substantial amount of people who actually nominated Gloria Matlock, because like you said, she's involved in everything. There's <laughs> definitely a power force in our community. So therefore, um, it was like a landslide win for Gloria. So it's like the people of Greenfield, that's who they felt like um, was was deserving of this award. Actually, now that you remind me that that's how the process worked, I remember reading in the Greenfield Recorder about that. And actually, one of the quotes from the report recorder said that on one of her nomination submission forms sent in from the public, she, quote, has dogged determination to use her time to do, excuse me, she has dogged determination to use her time to better the lives of those in her community. That sounds just like Gloria. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and um, it's it's so funny because um, I know like usually um, a lot of her kids who she picks up um, that's involved in Music of Franklin and her after school program. Um, my son is also um, goes to Federal Street Elementary School. And I know she's definitely like, so what are you signing your son up? And I'm glad to say I actually signed, I actually signed him up today. So. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Something else that you have helped to start there as, a, as an outgrowth of the Human Rights Commission, as I understand it, is an annual Juneteenth celebration. Um, and as many folks in Massachusetts may know, and let's remind some folks who don't, that um, Juneteenth became an official state holiday in 2021 in Massachusetts, marking the end of slavery in the United States. But Greenfield really launched with your help in 2022. Um, this day of freedom hadn't really been marked there prior to that. What did you think when you found that out? Well, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to start. Um, the reason why I started Juneteenth, I just recently joined the commission at that time. And I also recently just joined Greenfield Savings Bank earlier in the year. And it was a very um, turbulent time for the city during that time. And I noticed there was a great divide going on in the city. 
So I, I've always been about community and I wanted to use Juneteenth as a means of putting our differences to the side and having a family-friendly environment where we could all come together and celebrate this great day. And um, I know when I was first telling people like, you know, um, oh, oh, I'm thinking about starting Juneteenth. They were looking at me, you know, like I have three heads. <laughs> mm. um, but Why, so because they weren't familiar with the holiday or what do you think that, that, that look was in reaction to? I think it was just different. Sometimes, you know, um, anything different sometimes is looked at like, you know, what is this going to really look like? You know, so um, what I did, so so I definitely went out there and I just started promoting it and getting everybody together and, you know, put my string of events and how I wanted it planned and work with the recreation department. And I just have to say that our first year was at Energy Park and we had the drum circle and we had um, Music of Franklin perform, Strings for Kids perform. Style of X, the hip hop dance group out here perform. And I just have to say, Carrie, that it was a very satisfying experience just to see how many people came out. I mean, the park was filled for hmm. the first Juneteenth. So that kind of gave me a lot of momentum to go into my second year last year, which um, was at Beacon Field, which if you've ever been to um, Greenfield or if anybody from Greenfield is aware of how big Beacon Field is. Yeah. So, um, but that's how much excitement and people want to be involved. We had up to 50 vendors um, in Beacon Field last year. Um, we also, um, I also put together a youth parade, a Juneteenth youth parade. And we marched from City Hall all the way to Beacon Field. And we just had festivities all day. So mm. now we're on our third year. Yay. So. Moving, moving, yeah, moving right toward that. But in looking at the overall scope of the Human Rights Commission, you know, we have these celebrations like Juneteenth and the commendations like the award for Miss Matlock, but that's really only a part of what the commission does. And recently in January, the commission was asked to investigate allegations, or I should say, um, challenge, allegations were brought to the attention of the commission about alleged wrongdoing at the Wells Street Homeless Shelter, which is run by Clinical Support Options. And there was allegations, among others, but these include bullying and discrimination by the CSO staff of the homeless population staying at that shelter. What did the commission find when you took a look at that? Well, when we looked into that, um... We didn't really find, um, there was actually history. I won't really, you know, um, say names of the two people who brought them out, um, confidentiality reasons. But what happened is that these two individuals actually had um, some uh, bad history with them. And one person was actually put out for violation of the rules. So it was more so like, um, it, you know, there was a lot of bad energy there between these two individuals and CSO. But what happened during that, CSO did invite um, us to actually go in for a tour. It was actually me, um, along with our new mayor, Jenny, and one of the councilmen, um, Wahab. Um, CSO did invite us in. We was able to go in and take a tour and meet with some of the residents there. And from there, we was able to create, you know, a great partnership going forward. Yeah, and I understand you say you don't want to raise the names. They were published in a newspaper, but for this discussion, I will do the same and um, not not name names of the folks who brought those allegations forward. But they did say following that to the Greenfield Recorder that they felt like they weren't helped by the commission. And I hear what you said, that the commission 
did an investigation and found perhaps there were other motivations. Mm-hmm. But is this now an opportunity for CSO and the Human Rights Human Rights Commission to have a more open dialogue about how the population at that shelter are in fact being treated? Well, well, what it is is that this is definitely an opportunity for CSO to actually um, work on their end, and if they and if more and if they needed more support, the HRC would definitely be there. But um, what happens, that was just a piece of the work that we do was actually dealing with that particular grievance. The HRC hardly ever gets any kind of grievance or complaints. And just during that time, we just kind of like finished um, doing the award ceremony and we still haven't even finished that piece because Gloria still has to get her name engraved. But it was just something because of the timing that we just wanted just to show our support um, to the two individuals who brought this grievance forward and also for CSO. Because at the end of the day, you can't remember our number one goal as HRC um, is to create some kind of resolution between the two parties um, so that everybody could have some sense of sitting down, moving on and what's the next step. So looking at uh, another area that you're focused on, you are with Greenfield Savings Bank, as I understand it, the Community Reinvestment Act analyst and a community outreach officer. Tell us a little bit about that role in a nutshell. Oh my goodness. Well, number one, um, I started Greenfield Savings Bank in 22. And as I mentioned, that's the same year I started Juneteenth. I, I basically put together Juneteenth. And I that was the year I first joined the Human Rights Commission. Now, um, CRA is actually the Community Reinvestment Act of 1976. And basically what it is, is I look at the activities of Greenfield Savings Bank to make sure that we're in compliance and meeting the needs of our community. And um, our assessment areas, as far as the areas that we serve, would be Franklin, New Hampshire counties. Um, Now, because I have two titles, as far as the community outreach officer, I basically work to to fulfill those requirements by creating events that would reach LMI or low to moderate income communities. Um, Now, one of the things that I do do as far as I just recently launched the Greenfield Savings Bank Financial Literacy Workshop Program. And I'm very excited to say, Carrie, that we're actually booked out for 2024. That definitely says a lot about the needs of people who want to know more about financial literacy. That's exactly what I was just going to say. I mean, there's clearly a need for that in the community. Oh, yes. And I love it because um, the kind of workshops that I do, they start from um, kindergarten and go all the way up to senior citizens. So it's like two different groups. But um, right now, just like I was sharing with you earlier, I have workshops set up with Greenfield Community College, Mass Hire. Um, CSO, the bridge in Amherst, um, Greenfield Recreation Department that I work with the, um, the teens after school program, the Sheriff's Reentry Program, also the Womanhood Program, which is part of the Probation Department in the district in the Hampshire County, Franklin County District Court, and also Northampton um, Recovery Center. And that's just to name a few. But as I did mention as well, um, one of my great goals um, is basically working a lot with like um, the shelters, like Wall Street um, Shelter and the Women and Family Shelters um, on Federal Street here in Greenfield and other shelters around the area and also low income um, neighborhoods, um, housing, housing complexes in and around Greenfield. 
You're also involved, if you weren't busy enough already, in the Franklin County Rotary Club. What's some of the work that that group has on the horizon that you're excited about? Well, basically, um, one of the things that we're definitely focused on this year is being more involved in community events. Um, I know that um, we have done work with like um, Stone Soup Cafe, and, and they also do a lot of work at like the fairgrounds when they have certain events. But right now, we want to be more on the ground as far as supporting our community and um, addressing some of those needs. So um, we're actually um, in the midst of um, reverbing a lot of what we do for the Rotary, for the Franklin County Rotary. So I'm really looking forward to what that plan will be. And what, what is it that inspires you to be so involved there, not only in Greenfield, but in Franklin County, you know, more broadly? I was already community oriented um, before I moved to Greenfield from a little girl. Um, my grandmother used to do outreach work in the park. Um, she, she was a Lieutenant for the Salvation Army. And um, she used to take me out with her <laughs> to, to a lot of these outreach programs on Sunday um, to feed the homeless um, or to read or, or like be like a caretaker to them. So I grew up um, with that um, kind of experience already around me. And it just kind of like molded me into the person who I am today. Well, Empress Nemart, I really appreciate you taking some time to share your background and the work you're doing in the Franklin County region. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me, Carrie. And that's our show for this week. I'm Jill Kaufman in for Carrie Saldo. We'll see you next week on The Rundown.